Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 95 of Yogaland. Today, my guest is Coral Brown. You may remember Coral. She has been on the podcast before. She was on episode 19. We talked about Hindu deity stories, and this is a very different episode. Today, we're going to talk about the psychodynamics of the yoga teacher-student relationship. Coral is a therapist. She practices one-on-one and I really wanted to pick her brain about how she educates in her teacher trainings, how she educates her trainees, drawing on principles from psychotherapy practice. And I also wanted to get a sense of how therapists are trained differently in the dynamics of relationship as opposed to the way that many yoga teachers are trained. So she had a lot to say that I thought was really interesting. If you haven't been tuning in the past few weeks, I've focused on different aspects of the dynamic of the teacher-student relationship. So episode 93 was a conversation following up on Rachel Brathen's blog post and podcast soliciting Me Too stories in the yoga community. And I I followed up by interviewing Judith Hanson Lasseter and Mary Taylor to sort of get their perspective on how we can move toward ending sexual abuse in the yoga community. And then last week, episode 94, Jason and I talked about his approach to hands-on adjustments. It's just really interesting to think of hands-on adjustments as a power differential. I'd never really thought about them that way until Jason talked about them. And Coral and I talk about that a little bit on today's episode as well. And when she and I spoke, I hadn't even published the episode with Jason yet. So she hadn't even heard what we talked about. And she said nearly the identical thing to what he said, which is that she used to do more intense adjustments. She does very different types of guiding adjustments these days. So I thought that was was very interesting that they are on two opposite sides of the country. They teach two different forms of yoga and they are have sort of come to the same place. This is the last interview I have planned for now on the topic of teacher-student dynamics. So I hope you found this little mini series helpful. And I I hope that, you know, if you're a student, you're thinking about ways that you can use your voice and be more aware of how your voice and your body and authority and all of those things are connected. And likewise, if you're a teacher, I just hope that this brings you more awareness and more conversation to become a better teacher. So there have been allegations of sexual misconduct between gurus and disciples or yoga teachers and their students in the U.S. for decades. I'm not as familiar, honestly, with other countries. I know a lot of the history in the U.S., but not overseas. People feel shocked to hear this. They feel scared to hear this, you know, because yoga is supposedly a healing modality. And it seems, you know, outrageous that people would take advantage, that teachers would take advantage of their position. But when you and I were emailing about the topic, I thought you put it really succinctly. So I'm going to read that right now. You said, we know that the yoga teacher student model supports and even cultivates the inherent characteristics of a predator and a victim, authority, power differential, charisma, matched with the deep desire to belong, to resonate with a community, to feel whole and seen. I just think that's so well said. So let's start unpacking that. You know, why do you think the teacher-student model creates this power differential and what can we do about it? Yeah, I feel like it's it's so complex and it's beyond just the the student teacher. It's in when any time that there is this authority power differential with someone that comes seeking something and mm. someone that has something to offer. And to support what that person's seeking. So I feel like in the yoga community specifically, or in just in yoga specifically, how it gets to be so delicate is that what people are seeking from the practice on a deep internal level is so spiritual and psychologically connected. And it's not presented or sold or packaged as such in the yoga, say description of a class. Mm. It's mostly citing the physical components and benefits of the practice. So as we come to the mat, 
whether we come with the intention to work our physical body or our spiritual body, or whether we've been told to go by our doctor or our therapist or whatever's brought us to the mat, we're seeking something. Right. We turn to the teacher as the source of what we're seeking. And I think what we can talk about and unpack is this concept of transference, counter-transference, projection, unmet needs and behaviors and how those dance together. So the teacher in this setting doesn't possibly have the background that, say, a therapist or a doctor or someone in an actual profession that's governed and licensed, and there's a a board and there's complaints that can be filed. The, The yoga teacher doesn't meet that criteria, and they may not have, even if their training was wonderful and, and very thorough, they don't have the skills necessarily to meet what the student is seeking. And the student is assuming that they do. Mm-hmm. And when they put that or transfer that, we could say onto the teacher, whatever they benefit and feel from the practice, they may assume that that's become, it's coming directly from the teacher. And when the teacher is then adorned with these sort of, oh my goodness, that was amazing. You made me feel great. Or I've never felt this way. The teacher then takes that on as that they've actually created that versus that they're the conduit Mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, it's a, it's so complex. It's all these different things working together. And then what are the unmet needs of the teacher? And, and, you know, are they getting a need filled incongruently, meaning the need to feel whole and seen and valued? Are they getting that need met through teaching? That's so interesting. Cause when you said the deep desire to belong, to resonate with the community, to feel whole and seen, I was thinking about, the student. Mm-hmm. And obviously it can be part of the student, but I did, I never really even thought of that as that that's something that the teacher can feel from teaching also feeling whole and seen. When the locus of control is external versus internal, you know, we can get, we can get in trouble. We, what happens when that thing is gone? Yeah. You know, if we don't teach anymore, if the person that we, you know, we source our value, self-value from is gone, then you know, we're without. That seems to be an issue for most people with their chosen profession. I mean, we know that when people retire, it's really common to go through a depression. And I think that's because we align so much of our personal value with our, our job. Identity. Yeah. 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 Yeah, We, we tie our identity into, and that's cultural for sure, but we tie our identity into what we do and that equals who we are. And that represents what we believe in, what we value and how we choose to make a difference in the world is often associated with what we do for a living. And this Dharma and Shraddha sort of communication and relationship doesn't necessarily have to be found and expressed through what we do for a living and our livelihood, but our culture assumes that it does. Yeah. I want to just go back for a moment and say, I think I said this on the last podcast, but I thought it was really interesting that the Olympics committee started having safety officers at the Olympics that just occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they've been working on it for a couple different for this is like the second Olympics that they were working on it. But I think with the whole U.S. gymnastics team abuses, you know, with Larry Nasser, they really, really put it into place. And there was this one statistic that I read that the higher an athlete ascends in a sport, the more likely they are to experience some kind of abuse. I thought that was fascinating. And I, it's, I, you know, it's, I was trying to unpack it myself. Like, well, that seems crazy. Like as someone gets more, more successful in a sport, you'd think they would be less likely to experience abuse, but it, it calls into question, like what people have to give up, what personal power they have to give up to someone else to ascend in something. And anyway, I'm just bringing that up because I think it can be very disheartening. I mean, of course, it is disheartening for people to hear that this can happen in the yoga world. But it's like you said, it's it's not just the yoga world. It's like when there's a power differential, you know, we think doctors are trustworthy. And then we have the story of Larry Nasser. you know, we don't think about the coach sportsman relationship, but that obviously can be really fraught. And so it sounds like what you're saying is that in order to not have the teacher student relationship 
potentially become fraught with weird dynamics, potentially abusive dynamics, the teacher has to be able to separate themselves from the teaching. Does that make sense? Yes. Their identity, their value, their worth needs not be sourced from the teaching itself and from the, from the practice of teaching. We determine, and especially the business of yoga, is, and it can be so competitive and there's such a saturation right now with yoga and yoga teachers and studios that everyone, you know, people are vying to fill their classes and to have, you know, numbers met. So that puts us in a scarce, a trance of scarcity. And in that fear state, we lose the direct connection to our source and our confidence. We don't, we're no longer a confidant in ourselves we start to scramble and out of fear, we're not acting in our highest, most evolved self. So we're not feeling as centered and we're now using and misinterpreting the, the practice of teaching as identifying our value and worth based on how many people are showing up in the class. I want to talk about charisma for a moment. Yeah. I, I hear some whispers like, oh, the yoga world has changed so much with social media. And now there's just these images of people and then they suddenly become famous teachers. And, you know, there is some of that happening, but I will say as long as I have been doing yoga, which is like 20 something years, charisma has always been an issue. So even before social media, the, there was still this charismatic teachers fill their classes. Mm -hmm. And I think that some people are just naturally charismatic. So I don't know, I, I feel really, I start to feel like, how can we actually police this, right? Because if someone is just naturally charismatic, you can't fault them for that. But at the same time, they are going to attract more people who might unknowingly be attracted to that quality. Mm -hmm. So where do we go with that? Is it just the education for the teacher, you think? I think we definitely have to start there, but I think it's also those that are charismatic and that which equals having certain power over other be, others because you're you're influential when you're charismatic. Mm -hmm. People want to be around you. They want to do what you. They want to please you. Mm -hmm. And yes, that is just a, some people's nature. But how they use that, they have a responsibility to use that in a correct way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not in in a power seeking way and. I think essentially we all need to do our own work and we need to either be in therapy or be doing the practice or be self-studying because getting back to what I had mentioned about needs and, and behavior needs motivate behavior. So if we have an unmet need, it's going to motivate a behavior that we may not be at all conscious of. So the actions, the behaviors that we are communicating in the world represent a feeling of either being lonely or scared or afraid of, of being invalidated or feeling like an imposter being revealed. So all of these different fears that are based on unmet needs of being seen, of feeling safe, and this is childhood development, right? Mm -hmm. When we work that out and we know and we can connect those dots of the unmet need and the behavior surfacing, then we can check ourselves and we can have right action. But without that awareness, we individually are at risk of becoming that perpetrator mm -hmm. or that, you know, and, and it's not necessarily that it's a psychopathic or narcissistic or some sort of, you know, diagnostic issue mm -hmm. that we have mental health issues that cause us to, you know, intentionally go out and become this person. It's built, right? It's built in, you know, it's, it's created. And so the more we pay attention, the more we know about ourselves that then we can actually be responsible because we have, we have the awareness. So that needs to be, I feel like in the, the teacher training, as well as, you know, whatever sort of standards come to the surface out of all of this, there'll be some sort of standards review and initiative that takes place. There has to be to govern yoga teachers and to support them, but also that we, we do our own work, whether that's through yoga studies of the philosophy or through psychology or religion or spirituality, whatever it is that we, we unpack our own mythology so that we know what's motivating our behaviors. Yeah, that's, that's really smart. What you just said reminded me of something that Mary said in the interview, which I thought was really interesting, which was something to the effect of, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but paraphrasing, 
you know, that she's had teachers who they've trained who you wouldn't necessarily predict then be challenged by this kind of issue and the power dynamic once they became a teacher. And that's pretty fascinating that there is perhaps this side of being a teacher that you can't anticipate, you know, Mm -hmm. you can't anticipate what it feels like to be in that role and have people projecting all these, you know, glorifying things on you. And so I think that's what you're saying that that in and of itself, that lack of awareness of, of what can come with that role that can feel so good. You know, people looking up to you, people coming to you, people telling you that you've changed their life, people telling you that they feel so much better after class, people telling you that you've cured their back pain, people, all of these things. Right. It can give you a God complex or it can, you know, most people, oh no, it's nothing. It's not me. It's the yoga in the Velcro and Teflon where we hear something positive and it's, it just washes off like Teflon. And if it's a negative feedback, you know, negative, some sort of information that's negative, then we, we really digest and take that with us due to negative bias. But having more, more awareness around transference, what it means and counter transference, because like you just, you can't predict that this teacher is going to become this abuser or that's going to violate the rights of someone else directly or indirectly. And the same as a student, you may, you may assume, Oh my God, I would never have thought that student, that person would be susceptible to that. You right. know, we put almost blame on them or expectation of, I thought they were stronger than that. It takes stepping back to see the whole picture to understand why someone falls into one certain perspective or role and then why the other person, it's a magnetic quality, it's yoga, unification of opposing forces coming together to create a balance that's not a healthy one, but it's still each person has, has a role. And sometimes the person that is in the position of being either violated or abused, you know, it's obviously, it's not their choice, but they have certain needs that have been unmet or they, they fall into that sort of being prey Yeah, because they're either trusting or the, you know, the system is broken. There's a whole lot of reasons, of course, but for them, they're seeking and they're trusting. And all of a sudden the wool is pulled over their eyes. And before they even realize it, they're in this unhealthy imbalanced power differential sort of situation that they don't know how to get out of. And like, I think Judith was talking about saying no, all of a sudden isn't as easy or or as clear. And you know, your power has been not taken away or given away. Sometimes we say, you know, your power doesn't get taken away. You give it away, but that's not necessarily the case. I don't believe in these sort of situations of abuse where you don't have a choice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's certainly not a conscious. (laughs) Yeah. Certainly not a conscious choice, but it's like, you're saying you come to it sometimes with your own unmet needs. And then because of the structure, Mm -hmm. you can, find yourself in that kind of situation in an unsafe situation. You know, you don't walk down a dark alley at night because that's clearly an unsafe situation, but we go into a yoga practice that's supposed to be safe. It's supposed to be inherently safe. And like we said, a healing environment place for you to be able to celebrate or grieve or go through whatever process you're going through without judgment. Mm -hmm. So we walk into that fully believing and assuming that And then that is, that trust is broken. Yeah. So you're a therapist. I'm just curious, do you feel like because, you know, there's a licensing board and it's more structured and there's a difference in the way you're educated, do you feel like there's less sexual misconduct going on? I mean, I know it's prevalent anywhere, but just Mm. anecdotally, do you feel like things are better structured in that environment? In the therapy aspect and the therapy environment, I would say yes, but, uh, but there's, uh, again, there's, it's complex. There's a lot of factors that differentiate the two and separate them. So yoga is is a physical practice, yoga asana anyway, and the realm of which we're speaking is primarily physical practice where hands-on assists happen. And it's secondarily, and this is... I feel like this is backward, but it's secondarily a spiritual or 
uh, personal, emotional evolution sort of process. But most people are drawn into or onto the matter, into the practice based on the physical realm. Whereas Mm -hmm. in therapy, there's no hands-on, there's no touching. There's certain modalities that are body-based, but those certain modalities that are body-based aren't the majority of the practices. And those are not the practices that are included or credentialed or considered a practice within the licensure committee, board, department, or insurance panels. Mm, Interesting. Right. So if you're, if you're licensed and you're billing through insurance companies, then you're not able to bill for doing some sort of Reiki session or Feldenkrais method or Gestalt or well Gestalt. Yes, but you know, nothing hands-on. If choosing to do those practices, then you're not under the umbrella of the licensure board as far as being able to bill through insurance. This is why Judith was bringing up physical therapy in the podcast that she was just on that, you know, they've got a scope of practice in physical therapy. I'm just thinking like, as we start to try to solidify this more within the community, like we're going to need to borrow from different systems and modalities that already have things established. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I know there are people listening out there that don't think that yoga should be regulated at all, that it will kind of take away from the soul of yoga, but that's, that's not my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like, you know, and that's definitely another whole conversation, but there does have to be some sort of committee, some sort, and it's, it's, there's been attempts that have been made and they haven't been successful. I'm willing personally to look at Yoga Alliance and say, all right, try it again. Mm-hmm. You know, you're under new leadership now. And, you know, I enjoy David and I, I feel like we're all coming together now as much as possible to support the future of yoga and to save the landscape from becoming something that we don't even recognize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And safety first. You know, it's yeah. safety first. So if it's if it's going to continue being such a a part of so many people's lives, then it has to be something that can, you know, that is sustainable. Right. And someone else made the point to me, it would be equally as nice for people who are teachers who get hit on right after class or in class mm-hmm. or something to say, like, you know, that's outside my professional code of ethics or whatever, to just be able to rely on that, which I mean, they could say now, but I think to have things more formalized and not have it just be so wild, wild west would be helpful for everyone to have, to have certain sort of statements or, or posted, you know, and I did hear you say, um, in your last interview, somebody had something posted on the wall. Like it was actually something that the, I can't remember her name right now, but it was, it's on a video on yoga alliances site. Okay. Yeah. It's like, we all have the right to practice yoga in a place free from abuse and discrimination. Right, right. So, so maybe that's not the wording that it gets, you know, whittled down to, but that's safe. And talking, I, I keep coming back to this transference and counter-transference and, and like, I own my emotions and my feelings and I have, you know, I have the space here to express and explore mine, but not as they, you know, I understand that the way they relate to you are different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I really feel like we need to understand, you know, there's a liability form that everyone signs when they come to yoga studio, whether it's when they sign in for class or when they first come to the studio that, you know, says that the studio is not liable for injury if they fall or, Mm -hmm. you know, hurt themselves doing yoga. Well, there, I feel like there also needs to be some sort of protection in this realm that we're talking about now that is a a contract that is called out and signed or posted. I think that's so smart. I think that, and people might just think it, it sounds, I don't know, like, not enough. And it is not enough, but I do think that awareness is just huge and just posting things and talking about them openly. And, you know, quite frankly, and people might get pissed off for me saying this, but, you know, in the past, yoga was a pretty patriarchal tradition. And I think that, you know, it's time for some of those tendencies to just sort of be authoritative and not talk about things like needs to end. (laughs) You know, we need to be Uh talking about things more openly in order for everyone to be on the same page. Right. It's more of a Puritan sort of 
you know, like, let's not talk about that stuff. It's, it's not comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. You know? But it's way more uncomfortable to have all of this happening. So yeah, yeah. And you know, also, so many people can point out the problem and talk about that. And really to be solution oriented is so important, just as far as your individual point of view and how you survive in the world and whether you thrive, it's solution oriented. People are much more likely to thrive than just be in that striving mode Mm. or, you know, even less surviving mode. So to be solution oriented, no matter how small the solution, if we have a thousand small solution, it, it adds up and it, it creates a current. Yeah. I love that. that creates change. That's the most hopeful thing I've heard all week. Thank you. (laughs) We got on the phone today and I was like, I'm feeling heavy today. That that just like lightened my load. Okay, I want to get back for a moment to, you know, what you pointed out is a huge difference between the therapy client model and the yoga teacher student model, which is that yoga includes touch and hands on adjustments. And actually, by the time this episode airs, I will have run an episode that I did with Jason about his he feels that there needs to be a paradigm shift in manual adjustments mm-hmm. and he teaches it in I his, agree. his trainings. I'm wondering, yeah, I'm wondering what your opinion is of how we can educate teachers about giving manual adjustments. Yeah, it's, it's such a, a multi aspect faceted issue because teachers want to do hands-on assists. You know, the, the need that drives that motivating, that motivates that behavior is that students they think students like it is one reason. It'll make students come to their class. They, they believe. For instance, if I teach an assisting workshop, I'll have 50 people. If I teach a philosophy workshop, I'll have 20 people. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's yeah. people believe. And I ask people, why are you here every time I do something? And they, that's what they believe. So-and-so has a lot of students in her class because she does these assists. Or I had this great assist. I want to give somebody else that experience. Or I want to take people deeper into the practice. But it's I-based. Hmm. I-based. It's not about necessarily the student getting deeper into the pose on their own. Right. Because right. an manual adjustment or an assist means that you're doing part of the pose for them. So mm-hmm. over, over time, I've learned and I've gone from giving very, very strong assists. And for a very long time, that was my role as, as a teacher with traveling with Shiva, my teacher for many years and all over the world. And I just it gave a little bit of information to Yoga Journal on this for an issue that they're doing, an article they're doing, I think the May issue, but there is this change. It's time to change. And so there's a conversation about it. And I used to give a lot of significant assists. And, and to my knowledge, I never injured anyone, but that doesn't mean, you know, people never, they, just, they didn't say anything. I was <laughs> injured in this and I didn't tell the person that injured me. And it was a very good friend of mine. Yeah. So I fell into that old role of, the me too. And I lost my voice and people don't, people assume that that's not something I would do. Yeah. You know, like this circles back to what I mentioned earlier. So in that moment, I didn't want to offend the person. I didn't want to hurt that. So I took on, and that's an old pattern for me, having power taken away and one in three women, I think, I don't know the statistic at this point. I know that it's, it's ridiculous how frequently someone is abused. I think it's every night, 98 seconds mm. in America, and there's a sexual assault. So, you know, looking at it on a broader spectrum and saying, how many of us have been in that position? We're going to get triggered. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to scare the, the crap out of teachers and say, you know, they're all landmines out there. Watch out. You could trigger anybody with what you say, where you stand, how you, what you wear, how you, t- I mean, people won't, they're, they'll be too afraid to teach, but to be, to understand that what you say, what you do, how you touch has an impact in it. And it elicits response in people, regardless of your intention, even if you have the best intention. But with that being said, my assists have drastically changed in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And it's a much more subtle assist at this point where I'm working lines of prana and energetic alignment, which I've always studied with Shiva and the prana flow community. So say in side angle, partial konasana, instead of 
you know, rooting someone's hip and drawing their upper body because the common misalignment is they pitch the upper body too far forward in the pose, right? So instead of using a grounding hand at the pelvis and then the directional hand to draw their upper body back and put them into the pose, I'll now give that grounding hand. But instead of pulling back or drawing back, I give, say, my hand between their shoulder blades and just ask them to lean back into my hand. And so uh, they're actually doing the work and finding then now they can do that themselves the next time. Right. That's awesome. That's exactly what Jason's recommending. <laughs> it's so <laughs> nice when things kind of align that way. Yeah. He, his thought process is think more about grounding. You're not, mm -hmm. you are, you are not a stretching ma machine. It's not your job to stretch your student's body. And, you know, when I kind of questioned him, like, why are we still even doing this? He said, you know, because it can help people's proprioception if they're not aware Definitely. of where they are in space. And I sort of forget about that because it's just been so long since I was there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You give the cue, lean back, crown in line with your tail and, right. and they're not doing it. And it's not that they're defying you. They really, they think that that's where they are in space. Right. So instead of doing it for them, giving them that range and, and say like, this is going to feel like a balancing pose now, mm -hmm. even though both feet are on the ground, like it will feel when you, you're now defying gravity, the body wants to take the path of least resistance and have those angles. So gravity has something to hold on. So they have to effort less. Mm -hmm. Well, we want more effort and the combination with ease, you know, the stira and suka, but to teach the student, that's our role is to teach, not do it for them. Right. But at the same time, right. So you can look at an assist and, and an adjustment where an adjustment could be defined as someone's out of alignment and they need to have an adjustment in the pose, like move their foot pattern there. Something in the root is so off that it, the pose is not going to be able to bloom. Whereas an assist may be that a person is embodied in, in the pose, but I can come over and support their going deeper with providing a hands-on support or direction. And those having had them are like, you know, you sing praises when you, when you get into that next level, uh, you know, so I see the value in assists, but I also see the challenges in in triggering people's trauma and not having enough body awareness and not knowing the st everything you need to know about the student's body. And maybe it's a student you ha you've had for 10 years, but you don't know what happened to them in the last 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know, true. so it's just, it, there's so, if it was a one-on-one -on -one private situation, then, then it's more like PT, right. Physical therapy, you know, it's so yeah, I, it, there does need to be some change in, in how we, we deal with hands-on assessment and how people are trained. You know, you and Jason both said it similarly, which is like, the idea is to help them be able to repeat it again themselves. Okay. So the to idea teach. is to guide and teach, but not necessarily to do it for them. Because mm -hmm. what's the point of that? Then you're kind of setting up a system where they're, re where they're relying on you. Exactly. Now's the power differential that comes in. Yeah. Because yeah. now they've surrendered over to you their ability to even do the pose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just thinking of soup to Kormasana for myself years ago, where someone put me in that pose and changed mm -hmm. my sacrum for about a year. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah, I never did that pose again. I can't do that pose. No. That's not a pose for my body. No. It's, I mean, who, who, whose body needs that pose, but that's another story. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. You know what? But, you I know, realized I, I'm still a good person. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. I don't think the Dalai Lama is getting up doing Supta Kormasana every day. That's, that's funny. So I feel like the practice is dotted with all of these different aspects in which the, the power differential is evident and hands-on assist is one way. Um, the teacher is standing, the students are seated, like all these different ways that suggest the authority of the teacher and the student giving over to the teacher. And on the other end of the spectrum, the teacher having that power, mm -hmm. manipulating a student's body into the pose. I did this for them. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm thinking in their best interest, still that's me doing for them. And that's not my job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My job is to create a container for them to have their experiences in, not to manipulate them. Yeah in a positive or negative way, you know, like when, when we step over that line, we, we can tend to get in trouble mm -hmm. and energetically, emotionally, whether we as a teacher get attached or, or, you know, whether it does go deeper down that road of 
of shame, fear, and then at some point, inappropriateness. Yeah. So what other, what kinds of things do you do in your teaching or as a teacher to not set up that power differential relationship? What advice do you have for people? This is a massive part of my training and maybe because I have a therapy background, but you know, when I'm a therapist, I'm not a yoga teacher. I'm not diagnosing or vice versa. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm not blending the two, but they're always informing one another. So in my teacher training and and every teacher training has, we write the script. We have to, via Yoga Alliance, I guess, have a certain amount of methodology and teaching and practice and all these things. But there's then about a hundred hours that we just get to make up. So each training focuses more on certain aspects of yoga. My training focuses a lot on philosophy and really the psychology of yoga, which to me, and this has been my, my work is that the psychology of yoga is via the lens of the chakras. Mm -hmm. I really feel that the chakras are the psychology of Eastern um, psychology. Mm -hmm. And we talk about the psyche uh, and the study of it, psychology, right? The psyche from the Greek is the soul. And when we come to yoga, we're doing soul work, and yoga works regardless of whether it's by such a brilliant name, right? For the studio yoga works. Yeah. <laughs> it really does, whether it's glow stick yoga or goat yoga or whatever yoga. It you can't take the yoga out of the yoga. It its intrinsic inherent values can't be taken away because of what it does to the body mind for 60 minutes, 75 minutes. There's this refortification of the two main pillars of any relationship, which is trust and communication. So throughout a 60, 75 minute practice, you're being constantly cued to listen, to, to move, to communicate with your body, to trust your instincts. Even if the teacher is not saying that these communication receptors that have probably not heard and paid attention to one another for most of the day are now getting entrained. So when we leave, we have that yoga glow or that yoga feeling. Mm-hmm. And so focusing on the psychology, because that's what ends up happening is really important to me as a teacher trainer so that the students that are becoming teachers are constantly the student of the practice and of themselves. And they're watching their process and they know what to look for and they do their work. We go through root chakra, second chakra, third, you know, when we talk about the stages of development associated with each of those chakras, what needs are supposed to be met at those given times and what happens when those needs are met, aren't met because most of the time, you know, they're not, whether it's pervasive to the point of becoming traumatic, certain behavioral strategies are put in place when these needs are not met. Are we still using those very outdated strategies that from something that happened, we were eight years old, Mm -hmm. are we responding to stimulus based on our eight year old self? So they uncover and, and do all this self work and their role in knowing all of this is now not to go out and diagnose their students or, tell their students, Oh, you need to work on your root chakra. It's for them to be able to relate to the students and to understand for every chakra, we talk about transference and countertransference. So transference is when we attribute something that doesn't belong to somebody, something from our past, an experience or a person, we uh, attribute that onto the current person or experience, right? So if, if you look like somebody that I used to know, and that person that I used to know hurt me in some way, my nervous system, my brain, my negative bias is going to see you and make an association. And so we're hardwired to do this transference as a way of protecting ourselves. And then psychologically, we do it as well. And then we make assumptions about you. I would make an assumption about you based on this other, I would apply or attribute these qualities or characteristics onto you. So this is what happens everywhere with therapist, patient, doctor, but also teacher, student, and just in relationships in general, there's Mm -hmm. constantly this transference dance happening. So I educate my teachers that are going to be students that are going to be teachers about transference. And when that trap is happening, what's likely, what's it going to look like based on an unmet need in a root chakra, second chakra, self-expression, third chakra, overactive or anger or rage or competitiveness, how might that manifest in a behavior? Hmm. So they can possibly identify, oh, this is coming from an unmet need. They can have empathy. They can have a, a, a understanding without necessarily agreeing with the person's behavior or actions, but they can possibly understand what might be driving it. 
therefore have compassion and not react, meaning counter transfer. So if I've had history with challenging people in my life and now this student comes in and they're challenging me, I'm going to counter transfer onto them my previous experiences of challenging people. I might get angry or short or ignore them or have a little bit of a different, you know, I won't assist them or, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's all these ways of teacher counter transfer. I mean, it's like psychodynamic craziness, (laughs) but just to know that all of this is potentially going on and to look, be able to see the signs and then take a breath and Viktor Frankl style, like have the opportunity to implement change by changing the way you respond to a situation. Hmm. You can't control it. You can't control the other person's behavior, but you can, you can see it. You can slow down. You can disconnect from it. You can make space from it and check yourself. And that interrupts the pattern. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like even if you recognize it and you, you don't necessarily know how to respond to it in the moment, you can sort of create space around it instead of reacting in the moment and then come back to it or revisit the issue with the student or revisit your own feelings toward yeah on your own (laughs) yeah revisit it on your own and then giving the space so the student goes and does their work and you go and do your work super cool that's really cool and then what about for our teachers who are teaching right now I'm just curious because I just thought it was so interesting when you said The fact that the teacher gives hands-on assists, the fact that the teacher stands often while the students are seated, those set up power differentials in the room. Are there other things that you notice in the room that you have changed or do differently? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll often take myself out of the picture entirely. Either I, first of all, walk around the room a lot instead of being on the mat. I'm typically on the mat in the beginning to anchor for the student and I'm seated versus standing, I'm doing whatever they're doing. So in a way I'm giving them the control and I'm following. So it's a dialogue, right? So I'm in the conversation. I'm not leading it necessarily, even though I'm giving the cues, I'm constantly telling people to remember their intuition, to listen, because that's what yoga is. It's remembering your true nature to excavate that, to, you know, so I'm, I'm giving the verbal cues, but my physical movements are supporting that as well in that I'll be doing what they're doing if I am on the mat. And then after I've spent that first kind of like introductory part of the practice on the mat to, to join them, to anchor the structure so that, you know, they feel safe and sound and seen. Then I step off the mat and I'm in the class with them walking around. That's a form of assisting, right? You teacher walks by you and all of a sudden all your ducks are in a row. (laughs) So giving verbal cues and, and then I will often drift to the back of the room Hmm. and that causes some discomfort at first because they want to be able to see me. They want to be able to, you know, get confirmation or am I doing this right? That's where I want them to grow is in that discomfort and trust themselves and get the answer from themselves. I'm giving them all the verbal cues and support. I'm not just leaving them out there, you know, okay, be back in five minutes, but I remove myself in a way so that they can have their experience because it's not about me. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll pretty consistently say that not in a self-effacing way, but it's like being the moon. You're reflecting the light of the sun. You're not actually the sun. (laughs) So giving them that directly. And by the way, I'm in showing up in the room. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I have one more question. You mentioned, well, I think I mentioned social media and how I think it just adds pressure to everyone's lives. Mm. (laughs) Unless you like work on a farm and you just don't even have to advertise your CSA box. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? I'm just going to post this picture of a tomato because I I like, I don't care if anybody else does. I mean, I just said that. I said, unless you work on a farm and I realized like my CSA has an Instagram account. They actually have to, you know, advertise their CSA box. Anyway. I think it has added some pressure to everyone's lives. So what are your coping skills? How do you, what do you rely on to cope with just all of those aspects of modern life and how they're interwoven with being a yoga teacher these days? It's so complicated. Yeah, It's so challenging. And, you know, I do a lot of work with, with patients and with students about creating a Dharma statement, which is a mission statement, really but it's the mission statement of me. And it's what I source or reference to, to check in with when I feel like things aren't 
going, like when things start to feel a little icky. So I have a Dharma statement that's based on my shraddha, what I feel in my bones, what my deepest faith and values and virtues are, and in my Dharma, what that which supports, right? Um, I combined all of those kind of stream of consciousness, words, statements, phrases into a Dharma statement that I use to check myself when mm. as needed. And, you know, the first line of it is I strive to mindfully live in alignment with my authentic self and to risk discomfort if it serves my personal evolution. Social media gives me discomfort. (laughs) (laughs) I have to do that because it, it pushes, I need to push myself. And is this shame based? Is it, oh, I shouldn't be seen or, you know, this isn't what the practice is about or, you know, all right, if I want to serve, if, I want to act with integrity and goodwill. If I want to be graceful, fair, conscious, truthful, these are like more from, from my Dharma statement to raise the collective consciousness toward healing, fortifying, integrated by integrating body, mind, and spirit. Then I need to tell people that's what I'm doing and tell people where I am or how are they going to know? That's so smart. I love that. Because otherwise I go into that well of like Irish Catholic, like, oh God, you know, (laughs) don't make a big deal out of yourself and all that other crap. And then, and you're a New Englander. Exactly. Puritan. So I, my parents are New Englanders and it's the same thing. It's like, there's, I don't know if it's still like this, but like, I I like this aspect of the culture. It's a, it's a bit reserved. Mm. Yeah. And not wanting to be like, look at me, you know, it's just, it's just a little bit more. Yeah. The pilgrims. Think of the pilgrims. <laughs> it's a Puritan. It's very pure, and it's it's not about me. It's about it. And and there's there's value in that for sure. But I feel like the shadow aspect of that is that it it takes away your if you believe you're part of the source. And so it's if we now start to switch to a non-dualistic perspective, because the Puritan pilgrim dualistic you know Catholic and Protestant perspective was pretty dualistic in nature and hierarchical and punitive. So it's a clashing of cultures and it might be family of origin culture, the neighborhood culture, the East coast, the West coast, the (laughs) Western culture. Right. But, but if we're practicing something that's, and that's why when I was in grad undergraduate school and studying philosophy, Hinduism was so appealing to me because it felt so holistic and so all inclusive. And so like, you know, just, it recognized the source in all. And I was like, that's it. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. That, my roots, I live in Rhode Island and I'm pretty much from here, but I'm from Alaska and my parents created this community with 10 other people on like 25 acres. And they just had their own religion. They had their own community. They had their own rules and regulations and they didn't have electricity and running water and wow. any, or any of them. And it's still there. My brother lives there and you know, Bird Creek, Alaska is where I'm, I'm from in my, my like cells, you know, that yeah. model of being a tribe and, and being all one. And there's still diversity within the one, don't get me wrong, you know, which causes conflict. And then the most beautiful thing is conflict resolution. So I hope that the resolution from this current conflict and the solutions that we come up with can really set up the future of yoga in a very powerful healing way, even though Yoga Alliance doesn't want us to use use the word healing. Oh, I didn't know that. That's funny. That's what it is. Oh yeah. We had to all take it out of our bios and out of our (gasps) teacher training curriculum content. (gasps) Oh boy. I did not know this. Oh my goodness. There's so much more for me to learn about all all of this. They're always, eh, you don't know what you don't know. There's tons, there's lots of it out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. But like you said, I mean, we are at a good time because it's just, everyone's talking about every everything these days. So and there's yeah. lots of conflict everywhere. So hopefully exactly that that start it's, of a dialogue is is better than just exactly. silence. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be messy. It, it's going to get messier. And it's going to be a lot of angst. And in traveling and teaching in Germany, the angst or angst is a German word. And we, I feel like translated as as anger, right? Or being frustrated, really, it, it translates to them as fear. Mm. And when we talk about unmet needs and the behaviors that are driven by them, the most toxic ones are fear-based. Mm-hmm. Right. So, oh my gosh, this was so helpful, Coral. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely.
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Andrea. <laughs> Is there anything <laughs> I missed? Anything else you want to add? I want people to, to look more deeply into their, their own work and study their psychology and their, whether it's through the chakras or through some other lineage and look at say developmental psychology. And that's my work is that I've bridged developmental psychology and yoga and the chakras. And I have a webinar on it and there's a book in the process, but it's just so valuable for people to be able to identify their, their behavior with the unmet need. And it's so hard to to connect the dots because they've become so buried that the map isn't as clear anymore. You know, that's yeah. not, you can't relate. Oh, I'm acting this way because of that time when I was seven years old, you know, but to see how pervasive and old some of these patterns and strategies are that we're, that we're using that we need to update our strategies and coping skills, our, our operating system. Right. Absolutely. So I just recommend that people do, do their work, that they just look at themselves with, without judgment, but they just learn and know more about themselves and, and what makes them not just tick, but what makes them act or not act. Right. Right. And to develop healthier coping skills to, you know, yep. yeah, and that yeah. leads to healthier boundaries and that leads to, you know, I feel like that really implements change on a large scale, mm -hmm. but it starts with the one, each individual. That's great. All right, girl. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope you know how much I appreciate you. I truly do. And it's always nice to hear from you. You can follow me on Instagram at Andrea Ferretti, or you can always send me an email with a question or a thought at support at jasonyoga.com. Until next week, enjoy your practice.